Hi there, and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Madrid. The harm caused by mechanical ventilation has been known for some time, but until recently, it was less well recognised that the patient themselves may contribute to this harm. Antonio Pacenti is a professor of anesthesiology and intensive care medicine at the University of Milan in Italy, and he joins me on the podcast to talk about patient-induced lung injury. Antonio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here with you. Antonio, what is self-induced uh, lung injury and why does it occur? Well, self-induced lung injury, somebody calls it patient self-inflicted lung, lung injury, but we have to use something shorter, I guess. Anyway, is an evolution of, of the concept of uh, VILI, or most people call it ventilator-induced lung injury. Actually, it's not ventilator, we should say. We should say ventilation-induced lung injury. And when the patient makes his own ventilation, then is patient self-inflicted lung injury rather than ventilation-induced or ventilator-induced lung injury. Uh, the, the concept is that it's not the machine that damages the lung, but is the amount of ventilation, the amount of tidal volume, we believe, and also the amount, the, the respiratory rate. Antonio, what are the pathological mechanisms that are causing the injury? Well, that is not uh, perfectly understood, as you know. It is basically, I believe the major, major issue is the ratio between tidal volume and end expiratory lung volume. In the lung, to, to change the volume, we need to apply a certain amount of pressure. So there is a mechanical damage, which is uh, coupled with the biological damage, because the mechanical damage probably causes inflammation that then moves all the cytokines around, uh, causes inflammatory cells. And so the inflammation and ventilator-induced lung injury are... Uh, two sides of the same coin or medal, whatever you want to call it. It, it is important to, uh, to keep in mind that as well as excessive ventilation caused by a ventilator, excessive ventilation caused, caused by the patient ventilatory drive, at least under certain conditions, causes or might, might cause the same uh, pathway of injury. So is it the, the, the old question is, is it the pressure that's being exerted on the lung or is it the stretch of the volume that's being exerted on the lung? Does, is, is there one that's worse than the other? Uh, well, you know, if we put it to the extreme, changes in pressure without changes in volume does not cause damage as people that play the trumpet know very well. Uh, so we have to have a change in pressure that causes a change in volume. And then we, we, we get into the concept of power, 
which includes the respiratory rate. You know, if we, if we cause damage once a minute, it's very different than when we cause damage 50 times per minute. And that, besides the mechanical implication of it, uh, mixes up with the concept of biological repair. We are made to self-repair our structures within certain limits and within certain amount of time. Now, Antonio, in a spontaneously ventilating patient, we're often measuring airway pressures, but that seems to be not enough to be able to detect and manage the problem. Is that right? Well, when we talk about spontaneously breathing patient, actually being in intensive care, in an intensive care environment, we most often talking about assisted breathing. When we combine the work of the ventilator with the work of the patient's own muscles. What is very easy to see is the pressure generated by the ventilator, the pressure on the, in the airways. But the pressure on the, in the airways is just the tip of the iceberg because below it, there is bigger or smaller, depends on the, on the patient and the situation. There is another pressure, which is the negative pressure around the lung generated by the patient's own muscles. The patient muscles tend to expand the chest and suck up the lung. This negative pressure generated by the muscles is adds up to the pressure generated by the ventilator. And if we do not get a pretty good idea of how much the patient is pulling, we cannot basically uh, keep track of the possible damage by simply looking at the airway pressure. So how does that transalveolar membrane pressure translate into lung damage? Well, first of all, uh, the, the higher pressure generates a higher tidal volume. Most often these patients have a decreased amount of lung per, or a decreased amount of alveoli participating to the ventilation. So even a normal tidal volume generated by higher than normal pressures because the compliance is decreased, generates a ratio between tidal volume and then the expiratory volume, which is altered. This is the concept of driving pressure, which has got very popular in the, in the last few years, but it's very, very logical. And the smaller the lung, the bigger the driving pressure. And the same is true even also for the assisted breathing. We just do not see the driving pressure in the airway pressure when the patient generates its own negative pressure inside the chest. So being aware of the problem is part of, the, um, of addressing this, but how do we measure um, or detect when patients are at risk of uh, self-induced lung injury? Well, measuring is the top 
of the gold standard, but we cannot measure in every patient. We, but we have to be aware that the re, that of the risk, particularly before intubation and early in weaning. And first of all, we have the classical clinical signs, high respiratory rate, um, use of the accessory muscles of the neck and the, and the chest, the uh, feeling of the nostrils. Uh, every clinician knows this. In the discoordination between diaphragm and inspiratory muscles, expiratory efforts, all these signs tell us that something is very difficult for the patient in, in this moment. And what is difficult is breathing. Next to it, uh, if, if our patient has a central venous pressure line, we can see drops in the central venous pressure during inspiration. The higher the drop, the higher is the probably, possibly, potentially, the drop in intrathoracic pressure. Then there are, there are the measurements. Simple measurements, like uh, in the intubated patient, it's very easy to measure PO1 or occlusion pressure. It is the drop in the, in the airway pressure caused by the inspiration against occluded airways. Because the, the brain of the patient is not aware that the airway is occluded, so it, it makes a drop uh, that is uh, the amount of effort or force that he anticipates will be needed in the next breath. So I think, I think PO1 or occlusion pressure, which is not the same measurement, but they are pretty similar, uh, is a very good indicator of the effort the patient is going to put into the next breath. So this is, to me, is, the, this is a major, major issue with the ventilator is able to do itself, but simply by pushing a button in most ventilator. And then there is the, the gold standard, which is the esophageal pressure. But once again, esophageal pressure is not available in every patient in every place. Uh, Sometimes the, the, the central venous pressure is a good, good indication of it. Antonio, imagine that you've got a patient then who is recovering from sepsis and acute lung injury, and you are of the belief that they have got raised transpulmonary pressures because they've got an increase in their work of breathing. How do you manage them? What, what approach do you take to that patient to minimize the risk of lung injury? First of all, we have to make the patient as comfortable as possible. The first, uh, the simplest thing to do is uh, probably to check oxygenation. So we should make the uh, arterial oxygenation 
sufficient to make the patient comfortable, to, to decrease its hunger for air. And sometimes, simply increasing FiO2 or increasing PEEP is sufficient to improve the situation. Next to it, uh, there is the amount of sedation, particularly when we try to wean patients. Most patients come from days, sometimes weak, or of heavy uh, sedation, and we have to adjust the sedation to the, to the weaning phase. Uh, making a compromise with, between the level of sedation and the respiratory drive. This you see very well in patients, as an example, you know, the, in, in patients undergoing ECMO. Because with ECMO, you can change the, 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 the amount of CO2 the patient has to eliminate with his own lungs by changing the sweep gas flow. You really see that when the patient is improving, uh, he might tolerate higher level of CO2 elimination, a CO2 elimination work with his own lungs. So that is a very important point in my view. Then we have to, uh, we can play tricks with the ventilator, with the level of pressure support, with the ramp of the pressure support, with the um, expiratory sizing is very important sometimes. And sometimes we can go to NAVA as an example, neurally adjusted ventilatory assist. Some sometimes is very useful in, in, in marginal patients. So spontaneous breathing is a good thing, is the best, but sometimes spontaneous breathing is uh, dangerous for the patient. You know, in the, in the, in the old times, uh, when, when in the nine, late 90s, in, in the US, they were trying to perform, they were performing the six versus 12 milliliters per kilo uh, study. And it has been reported that when the, the tidal volume was decreased to six in patients in assist control, some of them were not very happy with the six milliliters. And so they had very strong inspiratory efforts and that ended up in hemorrhagic pulmonary edema or pulmonary edema. So maintaining a spontaneous activity is good, but it, it must be calibrated, tailored for the, for the status of the patient. And how do you monitor the impact of that? Um, are you trying to stay under a uh, total transmembrane pressure? And what would you be happy with? 
if I measure transpulmonary pressure, I think that uh, something around 10, 12 centimeters of water is uh, safe, safe. It's not the best, but it's most of the time safe. But we have no numbers actually. We have numbers about driving pressure of the, of the chest plus lung, but we do not have data on, on transpulmonary pressure. So we still have to learn how to those numbers. Uh, another, another very important pressure we have to keep in mind is the alveolar pressure. And the difference between uh, airway pressure and alveolar pressure is uh, mostly related to airway resistance and inspiratory flow. The higher the inspiratory flow, the bigger the drop in alveolar pressure. And negative alveolar pressure in, in physiologic, according to physiological principles, the alveolar pressure is matched by the interstitial pressure of the lung. And the vessels of the lung are inside the interstitium and if we make negative pressure in the interstitium, the liquid leakage will increase. Fluid leakage from the, from the circulation will probably increase. And that happens, as an example, very much with cardiac insufficiency patients, but it happens also in non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Actually, I, I think that one of the mechanisms that generate the, light, the, uh, the white line in early RDS in patients in the world, you know, fighting in bed to breathe, waiting for the intensives to come, the, the lung gets white because is making negative pressures trying to breathe with an increased inspiratory effort, high, inspira high inspiratory flow and high rate. Finally, Antonio, where do you think research needs to focus on this problem in going forwards? I think we have to understand better. And Dr. Yoshida is an example, is working very much in this direction, is to understand the experimentally and clinically the relationship between respiratory drive, respiratory effort, PEEP, and, and, uh, and blood gases in the patient with the RDS. You know, in normal people, blood gases control the respiratory drive. In the RDS, the respiratory drive is wild, doesn't care, in the, in the worst situation, does not care about PO2 or PCO2. And you see that, once again, you see that in ECMO patients. The severe ARDS, most of the severe RDS patients in ECMO, at least in the initial phases, they, do, they have a very high respiratory drive independent of the blood gases provided by the machine. And so we have to study uh, what 
controls the respiratory drive in ARDS and why the respiratory drive is increased in ARDS patients. Then we have to we have to understand better the role of non-invasive ventilation in ARDS, when it is good and when it is dangerous, which are the limits of application of non-invasive ventilation. So we need a lot of experimental and a lot of clinical work, clinical investigation. Antonio, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights into patient-induced lung injury. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of OSLA's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any OSLA learning you do is automatically recorded in your free CPD diary. Search for My OSLA wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.